Hi, I'm Matt Cushman. And I'm Chris Cushman. And we are the Star Trek Cutaway Artists. And you're listening to Truck Untold. Welcome to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. This week on the show, I've got brothers who contributed to the Star Trek universe in a very unique way. Chris and Matt Cushman are illustrators who drew some of the most iconic images often seen in the homes of Star Trek fans. They are considered the kings of the cutaway, as their technical illustrations stripped apart the holes of starships to give us a glimpse of what every deck looks like from inside out. Similar to a blueprint, except it's not just architectural plans, it's every table, every chair, or every object in each room aboard those ships. They've drawn the original Enterprise, as well as the D and the E, the Phoenix from First Contact, the Delta Flyer, Voyager, Arrival and Bird of Prey, and plenty of other Star Trek ships, as well as vessels from other sci-fi franchises, and much, much more. I never pass up an opportunity to talk art on this podcast and expose you guys out there to the inner workings of how stuff like this gets made. I can't think of anything more unique than these Star Trek cutaways, which if you've never seen before, wow, are you going to be in for a treat today? So stay tuned as Chris and Matt Cushman walk us through their journey through art and illustration and explain how their lavishly detailed technical drawings that have been in the home of so many Star Trek fans for decades get made. And chances are, after you listen to this interview, I wouldn't be shocked if it inspired a few of you out there to pick up one or two of those drawings as well. But before we begin this week's episode, I want to remind you to follow Trek Untold on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Trek Untold, all one word. You can get show updates, check out some fun memes, and let me know what you think about what's going on with the current events in the Star Trek universe. You can also support this show directly on Patreon at patreon.com slash trekuntold where you can support this show for as little as $2 a month. At higher tiers, you can listen to the shows before they come out, know about my guests well in advance, and even have a chance to ask them questions, get transcripts of these episodes to make sure you get all the info, and more benefits coming soon, including watch parties and live streams. But that's all dependent on more fans like you coming over and letting me know you want to be a part of events like that. If you want some Trek Untold merchandise, check out our store for gear and apparel, including shirts, hats, stickers, water bottles, notebooks, and a whole lot more. New designs will be added throughout the year, so it's always worth taking a peek. Trek Untold also has an Amazon shop where you can peruse everything Star Trek, sci-fi, and geeky on Amazon in one convenient location. If you're looking for a gift for the Trekkie in your life, or maybe want to see some of my favorite non-Star Trek things that you can get for yourself, Check out the link for my Amazon shop in the show notes on the audio version and in the description below this video on YouTube. If you're listening to us on iTunes or any other audio platforms that allow for ratings and reviews, please leave us a five-star rating and a positive review to help out this show. If you're watching it on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to us at youtube.com at trekuntold and give the video a thumbs up and a comment. All of these things help more people find this show and to continue growing and bringing you awesome guests each and every week. Now, without further ado, let's beam in this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. 
And welcome back to Trek Untold. And now joining me on the other sides of the screen, we have two guests today who have been called the Masters of the Cutaway. Uh, chances are you have definitely seen their illustrations before, and you possibly own a few of them as well. Today, we're joined by Chris and Matt Cushman. Chris and Matt, how's it going today? Great to have you here. It's good. Great. Great. Thank you. Thanks for having us. I, I love having artists on the show, and it's not something I can easily have done because, you know, finding out of the production art people is such a hard thing to do these days. Uh, and, you know, I, I love talking art. I went to art school, did the art school experience. I was an illustration person. Uh, so it's always fun to, like, talk to you guys, especially, and uh, learn about what you do because it is such a different thing compared to, like, a lot of the other guests we've had on this show here. So, um, yeah, let's just jump on in right now. And uh, I'd love to ask you guys the first question I ask all my guests. And that's, what's your earliest memory of Star Trek? And uh, I'm going to start with you, Chris. Uh, you're the older brother. You get the, the first go here. Uh, old guy in the room, yeah. Um, you know, I'd like to say that it was the mid-60s. I'm sure that I did watch it because I know that my dad watched it. But I would say more, probably more accurately, it was probably in the very early 70s uh it was syndicated to wkbd channel 50 in detroit um and it played every day so i would that's when i consciously remember like just becoming authoritarian about the tv set at five o'clock <laughs> like my sister used to hate me for she's a star trek fan now but she used to hate me because I would I would force the, the five o'clock Star Trek thing. So yeah, I would say then. How about you, Matt? Same story. Yeah. Uh, well, I I I was the syndication kid, so it was it was one of those things where um, I don't know what time slot it was on. I couldn't tell you any of the information, but it was. I do remember watching Star Trek like after dinner on a Sunday or something like that. And I think it was still channel 50 out of Detroit. If I, if my memory serves me right. And it was, uh, um, I do remember Chris left the house for college in 79. So it was the mid to late seventies that we had to watch Star Trek at eight o'clock or 10 o'clock at night or something like that. And um, I'm, Definitely a Star Wars kid um, uh, in the late 70s. Um, I definitely watched um, Next Generation because I was already, I don't know, preconditioned to do so <laughs> between old Star Trek and Star Wars and Battlestar Galactica and Space 1999. All those. That was another show that Chris had to watch religiously on the TV. I was just there through being there, you know, I had no choice per se, but uh, you know, that kind of stuff just interests me. So I found it interesting. I don't know how hardcore of a fan I am of space 1999, or I did like Battlestar Galactica a lot. Um, I remember wanting to watch that show. I'm 11 years younger, so I never got to see it originally aired in the sixties. But it is kind of cool that it basically was a generational thing. And it's like, you know, one brother's watching it when it's first airing. Next one's seeing it at syndication. That, that's kind of like the full Star Trek picture in a lot of ways. Yeah. Well, our parents never really said we couldn't, you know, like they once we turned it on, it was never like, well, we have to turn this off or something else. You know, they I think they kind of liked it enough to 
enjoy it, even though they may have seen it a million times. It probably helped having parents that were, you know, let that happen. Were your parents uh, involved in the arts or what do they do for a living? Mom was involved in, 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 uh, choir in high school. Like, um, the high school she went to had a extremely significant choir. I think that they, 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 they had, mom was definitely the most artistic of them. She also did flower arranging and stuff like that. Um, but I think later in life, my dad, my dad has a creative side to him as well. He built some furniture and, stuff like that but we're the only illustrators and drawers in the family so did you guys both know you wanted to be artists for a living like what what was the plan for uh for little chris and little matt yeah ever since i was in kindergarten i caught the bug really really early uh when i was 10 i won my first art contest uh at kennedy square in downtown detroit um and they gave it, it had a i got a book an art book. I can't remember who the artist was. Um, and a cash prize. And I was, I, I used the cash prize to pay for art supplies. And, um, my dad got me art lessons by a guy that ran a sign company. His name was John Banner. And, uh, uh, those were my first art lessons. So I, and that was around 10. How about you, Matt? Uh, were you kind of following your brother's footsteps or was this, is that, was that like your way towards art or how did you find your way into it? Well, I was always also an artistic kid in school, but I think Chris was drawing when I was, you know, four or five years old. I I would see the things Chris would be drawing and thought that was cool. And um, I'm always I'm the kind of kid that grew up just wanting to do things that were cool. Um, that I felt were cool, I should say. And I thought, well, I, you know, I like that. I want to do that too, you know? Um, so I think it helped seeing, you know, having an artist in the house. My my earliest recollection is he did some sort of hawk or eagle picture, pen and ink. And I, I thought that was neat. So I copied it, but I've always liked drawing. Um, and I was one of those kids in school that had a, in high school, I had a little grade point average. Um, and uh, that didn't happen in college. I had a pretty good grade point in college, but I didn't, you know, art was, I felt like was my calling and probably my biggest strength. So I I ran with it. Yeah, it's, it's always interesting hearing like what artists drew when they were younger, as opposed to like what they're drawing today when they get older or, you know, more professional or whatever into their field. Like for me, I was copying comic book pages and eventually I was like doing the manga because, you know, I was in that era of the 90s where the manga phase was happening. So everybody was drawing the big eyes and the lines under their faces and all that and all the action lines. Um, so now I guess I actually want to start with you in this one, Chris, because uh, I want to talk about how you guys found your way into doing technical drawings. And I read for you, Chris, that was actually connected to Star Trek as a teenager. Uh, I'd love to hear that story. Yeah, I used to go to this uh, mall with my grandmother almost weekly. And when I was 14, 15 years old, she would be shopping and she would let me slip away to the B. Dalton bookstore. And the B. Dalton bookstore uh, had this packet of Franz Joseph Star Trek blueprints. Mm. And it got to the point where the manager of the store just saw me coming like every week, just saw me coming, just saw me coming, just saw me coming. I would beeline to the I didn't have the money to buy them myself. So every week I would try to like 
look at a different blueprint and soak it all in. And I, I, I probably misused a lot of people, other people's blueprints, but <laughs> that same grandmother went into the bookstore one day and said, I know my grandson comes in here every week. And they were like, Oh yeah, we know that kid. And she, she says, you need to buy him some of these so he can leave them alone. And that's what she did. And I was hooked specifically from a Star Trek perspective. I was hooked uh, right on from, from that point to me, you know, seeing those blueprints and, and knowing that someone took the time to actually fathom out the interior to such detail to me was the hook, you know, and we're all about what's inside, right? We, we take something that's very complicated and try to show you everything that's inside. Um, Although our work is in one illustration versus say 12 blueprints or something. So yeah, that was it for me. Now for you, Matt, I mean, uh, again, you're 10 years younger, more or less here. So like, you know, you're about probably five or whatever when this is happening to your brother. So when do you start finding your way into technical drawing? Is that because you're seeing him do some stuff or does this happen much later for you in life? I do my, okay. So my first, I would say my first introduction to it was um, we have this industrial arts competition in high school. And and, um, I'm sure everyone who grew up in the seventies and eighties, when it was really strong, remembers it um and chris did a he did a cutaway of a boeing 747 for his uh high school industrial arts competition and i remember that maybe filed that away but i um by the time i got to middle school you know i signed up for drafting i think i had an architectural class in eighth grade and then i had mechanical engineering all through high school, nine through 12th. And I think 12th was actually um, architecture. And I just ate that stuff up kind of, I just liked, I liked drawing board stuff. And, uh, and I eventually, my junior year, sort of copied Chris's, one of Chris's engine cutaways he did. Cause by that time he was already working in Detroit as a, as a full-time cutaway um, artist. And, um, except the way I copied his engine was with um, proportional dividers, which you can upscale a drawing um, by changing the pivot point in relationship to your, to the length of your scissors, so to speak, your caliper. And the, the teacher thought I was crazy, but I didn't want to just copy it, you know, like I didn't want to um, trace it or, um in that in that fashion i wanted to see if i could i wanted to figure out how he did it um in a way too so that was my first i would say cutaway um in high school and um he you know he had gone to ferris state university which had one of the best technical illustration programs in the country there weren't many schools in the country that were offering it a couple schools other than Ferris. And um, by the time I graduated high school, just made the most sense to me. So um, I went right into um, doing technical illustration in college. Um, So just serendipitously followed the same path. My teachers actually, one of my teachers was one of Chris's classmates when he went. And then Chris's professor, who 
was retired, would always show up in class just to hang out. Just this old guy who would just walk around each, you know, as if he were still a professor. And and so I still got kind of the, uh, I still got a, kind of got his, you know, advice. And incidentally, I think I think also it's worth mentioning that old professor who retired that Chris had worked with Ralph McQuarrie at Boeing. Mm. Um, so there's sort of a, there's sort of an arc there. <laughs> yeah. John, I think his name was John James. And if, and if I'm not incorrect, you, you also had Richard Mall in high school, right? Yeah. We both really had uh, teachers that really engendered a lot of stuff in us as well. Like, I, I don't think you could underscore that enough that the right teachers can really take someone's interests and really hone it, you know? So yeah, it was great. That's very true. And it kind of reminds me a little bit of like my art school experience where you have some teachers who are very much like letting you do your thing and working with you to help get wherever it is you want to go. And then there's others who are coming back to you and they want you to do it their way. So, you know, was that like an experience that either you guys had? Like, was it more so for you, you were able to be free and explore or did you have the teachers that were kind of like pressuring you to do it their way? Well, high school, Richard Mall let you just do what you wanted to do. I mean, he wanted to know about it first. Um, and John James was a great teacher at Ferris. Uh, we There was a, another professor I had. I don't know if Matt had him at all. His name was Doug Farnham. Doug, Doug and John were the two teachers of that curriculum when I went. And Doug was that guy. He was just, man. You, you could not get a hundred percent on anything in his class. Like he just, and, and if he didn't authorize you to do it, then it, 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 it wasn't something that you should be doing, you know? And I, he got a lot of, you know, flack from that. The students were always going to the Dean because of him, you know, where John was such the opposite, you know? So, yeah. I remember uh, Mr. Mall, our high school draft, drafting teacher um taught us uh taught me um i mean he was a younger guy with chris but i'm sure he was kind of the same but he just a little humility you know he let you do things that you wanted to do but he also had standards and i remember both mr mall and uh, and uh the two teachers i had at college i was uh, not to I, not to boast, but I was one of the better students in class, and so they really enjoyed knocking me down, and with a smile, you know. And Mr. Mall was like that. He was like, "Oh, you did this is a great job, but oh, look what you did here," you know, with a big smile. And it would always irk me because I didn't want to be the kid, you know, the guy that had, you know. So um, how they taught was, I thought, pretty nice and. Yeah. Um, you know, gave you a sense of humility in, in the process. Can so. we, can we swear here? Go for it. Okay. So Mr. James, Matt was very correct. Mr. James picked on me relentlessly <laughs> and he would stop by my desk and he very loudly one day stopped by my desk. I was trying to draw an icosahedron, a 20 sided, a 20 sided ball. A soccer ball. A soccer ball. Exactly. And and he goes, you're on your back again, Cushman. And I was like, pardon? 
and he goes, you're totally fucking up. (laughs) (laughs) And, and it wasn't done for me. It was done for the rest of the room who just howled relentlessly, you know? So, but I, I, I knew that he appreciated me. So I would laugh right along with it, but I, you know, it was, (laughs) it was something else. Yeah. And it sounds like overall a good experiences. And uh, for you, Chris, I know not too long after you then went into technical illustration and started doing some industrial design stuff. Uh, and that eventually did tie into Star Trek through working with David Kimball. So can you kind of uh, walk us through the process of how you ended up meeting Kimball and how that ultimately became a pretty life-changing moment for you? Well, I mean, David Kimball was life-changing for me in as much in the same way that Franz Joseph was life-changing for me. I went to the premiere of the uh, the motion picture in 79 in Grand Rapids, and they were selling his cutaway poster in the lobby. And I was like, oh my God, like it was all the money I had left in my pocket. And I was going to spend every dime of it on that poster. There was just no way I was walking out. In fact, I may have had to borrow five bucks from a classmate. So I was already a David Kimball fan. And, you know, I, when I went to Detroit, I, I didn't start off doing cutaways. I just started off doing like production line manuals and assembly guides and, you know, all things automotive. Um, and Star Trek The Next Generation came on the air in 87. And then maybe in the second year, um, the episode of next gen where the 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 space entity life form is sucking on the back of the enterprise d and causing all sorts of chaos and pandemonium and Jordy's trying to explain to everybody and he had this graphic of the enterprise d on the screen and i thought oh my god i need to take a picture of that because i can that's like a rosetta stone for me on what where at least engineering was you know, and so uh, I said, I'm going to I'm going to do a Dave Kimball. And I just did it for me. You know, I, I didn't think it would go anywhere. And I had a, the first pencil drawn. And then one day I was on an assignment uh, to Cadillac Motors and I'm sitting in the lobby. And this Dave Kimball was a big guy. He's a large framed human. And he came in with another person and he said, my name is David Kimball, as if the receptionist thought it should matter to her. You know, like he had a sense of himself that was interesting. And and uh, it was lost on her, but it wasn't lost on me. I leapt out of my seat and I was like, no way am I letting this guy leave the lobby without talking to him. And from there, he, he stopped by my actual desk at the GM Tech Center the next day. and. All of the people that I worked for knew who David Kimball was because he had been there before. He had done a lot of work for Corvette um, and other GM cars. And uh, they were all like, why is Cushman getting so much attention from David Kimball? You know, and I showed him my enterprise and I said, this would make a great poster. You know, and he goes, yeah, it would make a great poster. And he actually, you know, gave me some names and numbers to call and kind of got me started. And at the same time, he started giving me freelance work. I, I, I drew cars for him. I drew Acura. 
uh, we did the uh, Dodge uh, Viper. Uh, no, that that was a different that was a different company, and a little bit later on, but um, Mercedes. No, he painted the the Dodge Viper, um, but I I did the line work through another company. Yeah, yeah, and he paid really really well, but his deadlines were insane. Like I didn't sleep when working for David Kimball. Like literally, I could go a week without never, you know, with two hour naps, and that's all I would get, you know. But he paid exceedingly well. I did a impact wrench for Ingersoll Rand for him that literally the FedEx package came one day and it went out the next day, like a complete drawing and inking on Mylar. So a pencil drawing and an inking on Mylar in one night, but it paid like $1,500, which in 1992 money was you were, you were doing good. So yeah, it's pretty, uh, he was a pretty cool guy to work for. He's still around. Oh, shout out to David Kimball. And, uh, yeah. you know, let's talk actually, if you don't mind, a little bit more about the Enterprise drawing, because this is now, you know, your first time working with Paramount. So uh, I'd like to hear what it's like working with them uh, and basically getting to be a fan while being paid to do it. Well, on the Enterprise D, um, I didn't have as much contact with with them. Um, my The person that reviewed my drawing was Mike Akuda. And, and all of the documents that were sent to me and notes and uh, red line markups, he sent a copy of my drawing back to me with red all over the drawing. Uh, that was Mike Akuda, but we never really talked, like physically talked. Um, they sent me a three-inch binder, which in in my mind, because of the illustrations that were in that binder, um, was dis- was the the material that was being distilled down into the next generation technical manual. So a lot of that information was in there. It just was on individual Xeroxed sheets. So that was my first foray with Paramount. Um, I had hired someone to license the product, which was you know not a a great story in the end, but it got done. You know, I, this thing that I had started for myself, just for the love of it, got done, got made into a poster and a very popular poster. And um, honestly, I think the more you can get something done and show to somebody that it's a product, the more they will buy into doing something with it, you know? So that was that was one of the big lessons then. Um, when we got to SciPub Tech uh, to do all the other posters that we did, we had a lot more interaction with the people. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to come back to those in a little bit, but I do want to ask a little bit more about the Enterprise, and in particular, you know, I know that it was like kind of the poster that was like one of the most well-known things for TNG at the time, and to this day, it's still available. You can still find it on places. Um, but the question, I guess, is whether or not they're actually like legally owning the rights to sell it or not. So uh, I think that's kind of my question, because I heard that for you, that Enterprise poster was also kind of a giant headache in a lot of ways. Um, it, it The poster itself wasn't a headache. The the lady who had licensed it was was turned out, you know, when you like the first run of the poster, the largest 
the largest version of the poster, 48 by 24, I think. I'm, I may have that those measurements wrong. Um, they, she, she ran 100,000 posters in one throw in Chicago. And then she did a smaller poster, which was 36 by... 24 by 36. 24 by 36. Um, and then she ran a third poster uh, that had no callouts on it. And she got some artists to create this space background. And and uh, I thought that was weird. But, you know, it sold copies. You know, people liked that. Um, and then she had it made into a puzzle which I would still kill to get my own copy of that to this day. And, you know, money was rolling into her company big time. You know, I had uh, proposed to her uh, some Star Wars cutaways and did some drawings. And she was looking into that. Well, while she was looking into that, she was also looking into uh, finding another artist to do those posters. At some point, she just stopped paying me my royalties. So I had to, we had to go to court. And, you know, in the end, her biggest mistake was that she, that her lawyer never bothered to ask any of the jurors if they were Star Trek fans. And they were. <laughs> and they were really angry with her when they gave the verdict. And I, and they actually gave me compensatory, which I didn't, really didn't know that I had coming to me because they were so upset about it. And then, you know, typical story the next day, literally the next day, there's registered mail at my door. Hi, I just went out of business and into bankruptcy. You get nothing. So I went from elated that I was going to get a pretty decent check to knowing that I would never see another dime again. So it went back to that labor of love is all I've really gotten from it. I mean, I did get paid some, but not what I was owed, right? Not what not what I had coming. Yeah, that's the sad part of the story. And, you know, like I said, I checked on Amazon, I checked on eBay, and I can see that poster is still for sale, but I assume none of those profits are going to you, are they? None of them are going to me. And then the other thing that I, I know rankles both of us is that our the Enterprise D poster and the Enterprise E poster were knocked off in Germany. And that's definitely not coming to us either. You know? So you can, there, still, buy the, you can still buy the e-poster in Germany. And it's all in German. Yeah. Actually, um, I have, uh, you can't buy it in America. You can't ship, you can't order it and have it shipped here. There's a devil in the detail there in that I think um they they wouldn't dare try to sell it here. Um but I have a friend in Germany um, who used to live here. He's actually my daughter's godfather. And I asked him, hey, can you buy this and mail it to me? So it's on its way. So I'm going to see what these, the e-poster looks like up close in German just to see what's, you know, <laughs> what's how it was printed. What does it say in the fine print? I'm curious as to. So, you know, it was the, it was it, all of the. All of it, as terrible as it was, was a good lesson for both of us. And when we went on to SciPub Tech, you know, Matt works. Matt's work involves a lot of 
lawyers in what he does every day. Um, and so when we, when we developed our contract with, with the next person at side pub tech, you know, I think we protected ourselves a little bit more. We were a little bit more wary of what could happen and how greedy people can be, you know, and then just to finish off the story, the artist had created a cutaway of the millennium Falcon. And when she went bankrupt, so did the deal for using that drawing for the Millennium Falcon. And I, I actually saw it framed in a uh, art supply store uh, that I used to uh, shop at a lot. And I said, what is that from? Who, who did that? And they told me who it was. And wasn't, then, it, wasn't it your Falcon? No, it wasn't my Falcon. It was, it was a... I thought I, I she took your wanna... pencil and had the guy finish it. No, well, no, he he had redrawn it, but it was virtually using yeah. the details were all the same, right? And um, and uh, and I don't want to say who he is. I, he's still alive, and he just sold it at auction and got twenty three thousand dollars for this painting of the Millennium Falcon. And you know, okay, great, but um, I also found he had documented his entire process and how he had felt bad that she had gone out of business. Uh, but I thought that it was poetic justice. Know, it was poetic justice, you know, because <laughs> that I did go on to do the first three cutaways for star Wars that are out there, you know? So, you know, it's I pub tech, huh? Two. We mean two. I did do. I did one. Yeah, we between the two of us we did. Oh three. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, technically, so, you did the snow speeder and eight at at in one poster, so uh, maybe. That yeah, that's true. Six. Yeah. So, anyways, not to make this a Star Wars episode, but it just was funny how it turned back around, you know, and I was able to snatch it back from her, uh, to some degree. Um, yeah, I, I never want to r- run into her in life again ever it wouldn't be a good thing i would say plagiarism is a knocking off and plagiarism has hit us several times in a lot of different ways back when star trek magazine came out in the 90s if you remember that really high class magazine um they did the fact files which that's when they brought in um ben robinson to 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 facilitate that or i don't know what his role was in that um but i personally believe i don't have um absolute proof of this that our cutaways were the impetus for the reason why the fact files were in that magazine because um or or a combination of the fact that you know french France Joseph, Dave Kimball, Chris Cushman did this work. Now me, um, you know, there was a, a real call for it. So they added cutaway illustrations, little little illustrations in these magazines. And um, um, I do know that the, um, like the Enterprise E nacelle they had in one of the issues of the magazine was my, I did, I did on the Enterprise E, I did the back end of the ship. Chris did the front end of the ship. 
So I did the engineering and the nacelles. Chris did the saucer and and down to the deflector dish. And uh, so Ben Robinson took my nacelle and just flipped it 90 degrees and put it in a fact file, you know. Um, and then I guess, you know, um, another form of flattery, our work made it into the Haynes manual where they, they just – copied an illustrator over top of our e-poster and uh so we had we made sure that we were given credit in the second printing of that book but um that was also handled by uh people who handled the fact file so so it, we run into it it's a little discouraging but um you know um i guess if there was a silver lining in anything it's like there's if people like our work that much, if it's, you know, if there's value to it, they'll, they're going to knock it off. So what can you do? <laughs> Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is sponsored by Triple Fiction Productions. Celebrating 15 years in business in 2023, TFP creates 3D printed Star Trek and sci-fi inspired items that fit into any collection. Whether you're a cosplayer who wants a Starfleet phaser, a Bajoran tricorder, or a Klingon dagger, or a toy collector looking for that special accessory or diorama to make your figures truly stand out, Triple Fiction Productions has exactly what you need. And for you figure fanatics, that includes products that are the perfect size for Galoob, Mego, Playmates, and everything in between. All products are 3D printed in the U.S., with new designs constantly being updated on their website. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, where the more you order, the more discounts you receive. TFP also has a pay-what-you-want section, where clearance or misprinted items are available at a discounted price. Best of all, every product can be shipped worldwide. As a special bonus for listeners of this show, Trek Untold has a special discount code just for you. Enter UNTOLD10 at checkout for 10% off of all orders with no minimum purchase required. That's 10% off using UNTOLD10. To see all of their products, head to triple-fictionproductions.net. Or to stay up to date on their newest products, find them on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Triple Fiction Productions, where something is only impossible until it happens. Have you ever watched a YouTube video and said you wish you could do what they were doing, whether it's the filming, the production, the editing. Maybe you listen to your favorite podcast and you wondered how they put that show together, how they got that great sound quality, what gear they use, how much does it cost to get started? Or maybe you checked out a video or read a book about one of your favorite entrepreneurs and it made you say, I want to live that life. I want to do what they do. Then check out my podcast, Toys and Tech of the Trade. I'm Rich Butler and I've been making podcasts for almost two decades speaking with experts across all fields to get to the bottom of the hows and whys of their achievements. Each week, I sit down with these amazing people who have carved their own path in life and share the gadgets, the gear, and the tech that they rely on to create their content, the methods that they use to run their business, and the habits and trends that are part of their daily routine and their way of life. And all of that, of course, gets put together to make them successful. We pull back the curtain on the process to help you understand what these people do differently so that you can draw inspiration and get ideas and be inspired so that you can take action today. This podcast is inspiring, educational, it's enlightening, 
And most of all, it's a lot of fun. I want you to join me on this journey so that you can use the tools and advice shared in this podcast to level up your business or creative endeavors, giving you all the tips, tactics, and tools so that you can transform what you're doing from a side hustle into a full-time lifestyle where you can collect a paycheck for doing what you love. Check out Toys and Tech of the Trade wherever you listen to podcasts and check out the RageWorks Network at RageWorksNetwork.com for more info on this podcast and all of the many other great shows that we have on the RageWorks Podcast Network. That's Toys and Tech of the Trade with some assembly required. Uh, you know, Matt, we haven't actually talked yet about how you got into doing the technical stuff with your brother. I mean, was the Enterprise E the first one you guys collaborated on together? No. Um, well, you know, Chris was dealing with his. Um, well, I was in college. Chris was uh, when I when I entered college. I think Chris was not quite um, realizing the drama that was about to unfold on his D. And I called him and said, "Hey, for my thesis, I need to for for a technical illustration. You have like a minor and a major thesis. I did a paintball gun for my minor, but for my major thesis, I." I called him and said, "Hey, you know, um, I need I need to acquire reference and materials, and I figured you you have a, probably a lot of reference for a car engine or something. Maybe I can do it a different angle or an auto, an automobile. Um, I was thinking of an engine, I think, at the time because I didn't want to get too crazy. But and he was just like, um, "Why do you want to do that? Everyone wants to do something. Everyone does that. You know, why don't you do something different?" You know, no one's ever done a cutaway of the original Enterprise in 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 any in any great way, and I was like, yeah, I could do that. It sounds you know, um, sounds like a cool idea. Sounds manageable. Um, it was a lot of work, um, and um, you know, also as part of that project, you know, it's it, it, the teachers gave you a little extra credit or 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 it helped your project if you had a consultant. So Chris, you know, would be my guy, you know, if I, this is back in the day where, you know, I did something and I would just run it through the blueprint machine and mail it to Chris. And then Chris would look at it and say, okay, you know, he'd make a comment here and there. And then I would keep updating. Um, so um, to back up a little bit after that phone call, that was, you know, gearing up. That was my, um, during the first semester of my last year. Um, and then we had winter break. And so we're all at mom and dad's for Christmas. And so Chris bought me a ATM Ertl model kit <laughs> and he brought his Polaroid with him. And, uh, and he also, um, made a copy of, or lent me his branch Joseph or, blueprints and because you had to have reference in order to do this you just couldn't create it out of your head um that was part of the class i mean this kind of work you're not just relied upon your own imagination for real world things and so we had the same standard applied to you know science fiction um so you you had I had to use what was there uh, at the time. It was just Franz Joseph and ATM Ertl, and uh, both of which are pretty horrid to work with um, in terms of how 
you know, they were created. Um, the, the ATM Earl model is not perfect in terms of angles, dimension. You know, it's it's not bad, but it's it's not perfect. Um, and then the Franz Joseph prints, there was a lot of liberty um, given. Um, and no, no disrespect to Franz Joseph. I mean, he he didn't really like Star Trek, but his daughter loved Star Trek, and he did those for his daughter. And I think it's um, would a great, you know, um, it's a great story in itself. And Gene Roddenberry liked him because they were market. He thought they could be marketed, marketed. So um, it did a lot to that. You know, the animated series did a lot to keep Star Trek alive um, during the dark ages. Um, but anyway, uh, Chris, I, uh, you know, we took some photographs, picked a nice photograph and I, I got going right out of the gate in January after Christmas break. And I worked all the way until literally the day it was due the night before it was due. I had to run my illustration to, um, I had to present it in a certain way and it was large mylar. And so the college had, uh, I don't know if um, if you know what a stat camera is, not many people will know what a stat camera is, but it's a, it's, it's a stat camera is a wall camera. So basically the two rooms, one room is the box of the camera. One room is the, the um, photo, you know, what you're photographing side of the camera and you could lay a large piece of work on a sliding wall and it had a huge lens and you could go into the camera side of the room, which was lit with red. And it only took black and white. There was no grayscale. It was just black and white sensitive film. And so I photographed my illustration on a, on a, using this big stack camera to bring it down to a manageable size that I could hand in. I remember doing that the day it was due putting it on an illustration board, putting a sleeve over it and handing it in. You know, that's how things are usually, you know, nth hour. So that's got the whole ball rolling and the whole the whole the whole thing behind Chris suggesting that too was and again, he didn't know this drama with his D was going to come down the pipe, but it was you know, if this is good, maybe we can use this through my publisher to get it printed, you know, it'll have to be redone of course. And uh, then the whole drama with the D came out and we went through a period of about a year of a year and a half of regrouping before Chris found um, SciPub Tech um, interested in doing our work. And it was basically the flagship for SciPub Tech, which got the whole ball rolling. And then Chris jumped in right away with the DS9. So that was his first project with SciPub Tech. After those two were done, then we did the E. So let's talk a little bit about the E. And I kind of want to get into the nitty gritty now of how you guys actually do your work. Because, you know, I've talked to writers and it's interesting hearing how writers will collaborate together. But I've rarely talked to artists or illustrators that work together in tandem. So, um, you know, I guess we can use the Enterprise E as the example here. And whoever wants to kind of jump in and answer this one, feel free to. But, um, you know, let's talk about how you guys actually make your illustrations. How do you begin? What's the process? And how are you two communicating and drawing these things together? Well, I think, again, we we, we met, I think, I, I, I want to believe it was Christmas. 
Yeah, we 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 got uh, uh some early uh the earliest drawings uh John Eves you know t- uh top side front rear view of of the Enterprise E uh and you know we simply glued them onto uh some foam core and built literally our own little foam core model of the Enterprise E. Oh, that's really cool. So, yeah, and it usually starts with a model. Sometimes it's a model that you you, you can buy in the store, um, or you know, one of these. You pick a view. You, you you get a view that you think will will satisfy being able to look at most of the stuff inside of it, and then you take a picture of it, and you can trace the outside of the model, and a kind of, that kind of establishes your scale. And then you just start cutting into it, you know, and these things are made up of pancakes decks. And so, um, you know, Matt made the phone core model. We photographed it, picked the one that we liked. And then I did a drawing where I just did the outside of the model and the a, an initial assessment of the decks that are on the inside. And then from there, uh, we we essentially split the drawing in two uh literally cutting it with a scissor so that matt's side and my side at least at that moment still fit perfectly together and then matt went to draw his side and i went to draw my side and we were you know that the enterprise e we got to work with the the art department folks pretty closely you know it it was through Federal Express still fax machine. I think you, you left know. out. I think you left out a step. What step did I leave out? I think um, didn't you? Didn't we? When we came up with our view, and you probably presented that to the art department. Didn't they go out of their way to get us a photograph of the filming miniature at that angle? And that was the, that's what we drew our. Yeah. Yeah. Now that you say it. Yeah, for sure. Because that's, if you look at our cut, our e-poster, I mean, it's an actual, the actual shell is the enterprise E. You're right. Um, We try to work. We try to work that way for final. I mean, we can come up with concepts and stuff, but I, for the final illustrations are always of the, of the shell, you know, of the actual filming miniature. Yeah, that's how I. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I readers digested for us. So. No, no, no. But Chris is right. He cut it in half. Once he got that, he also gave me. You know, Chris just sort of became the project manager and said, "Here, here's the mid the midsection uh, MSD of the E that probably Mike or Doug created Doug. for the for the for the movie." Um, and here's how they, you know, he he drew in the structural struts in this way. They're kind of, you know, the E's made up of a lot of diagonal struts um, that are integrated. And uh, so Chris kind of created a primer, you know, this is how I want this to look. Um, you might have you might have done a, a corridor section. And uh, it was surprising how well they fit together. You know, 
from a standards point of view. They matched right back up within a millimeter of each other. Although uh, Matt Matt is beyond fastidious with his line work. And uh, I, I don't know, which is the hardest pencil, an H or a B? H. H's are, are hard. Okay, so Matt's an H pencil guy. And my drawings look like a mid-B pencil drawing. You know, the paper is no longer white. It's kind of got a gray hue to it. You know, uh, and although they matched up there, you, if you if you look at them, if you look at just the pencils put together, uh, there's a, yeah, I'm 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 way more, just let's get it done. You know, <laughs> Matt's like, let's make it perfect. You know, so yeah, um, but it worked out. It it matched within a millimeter, even with all that. So. I'm curious to know, by the way, like how big do you guys work when you're doing your originals? Well, the D was 77 inches across the pencil drawing. Wow. Uh, Matt, what was your E? The original pencil on your E? Or I mean, your your original Enterprise. Uh, um, I built a, um, when I got out of college, I built a, I bought a piece of plywood, a four by eight foot piece of plywood. And um, I built a drawing table. I found a seven foot. Um, I had I had to cut it. It wasn't. I think it was four by seven feet. Seven feet's what eighty four inches. And I found a T square, a sliding T square, mechanical T square. For uh, I bought it new, with the cables and everything, and the mat, the 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 self healing mat. Um, so. All my subsequent drawings for the original Enterprise were just under seven feet, so 80 inches. I mean, that's a pretty enormous workspace to have. And I know, like, for a lot of folks who might be listening, they don't necessarily draw or paint that big. They're probably working, you know, 9 by 12 or 17 by 11 or whatever. Um, But when you're working that big, I mean, that, that really is a skill just to be able to kind of still maintain your proportions and not get lost in the size of things. Because I know, like... A lot of folks, for example, here's just a thing out there. If you're someone out there who draws a flat on a table, whatever you draw, it's at the bottom of the paper. It's going to probably be bigger than what's at the top of the paper just because of how you're working. So, I mean, for you guys working at that enormous scale, how do you actually maintain your proportions? String. Literally string, nails, tacks. When the Enterprise D was on the pencil drawing board, I li- you literally had to walk through a spider web of 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 string that I had a nail on the wall in the kitchen that went down and across the board to represent one of the vanishing points of that poster. And then another piece of string went down to the floorboard, you know, in another room to for the other vanishing line, you know? So very old school. <laughs> yeah, Very I would say school. I would say that um, the size of our illustrations, uh, the the E wasn't that big. No, smaller. Um, I, um, but uh, I'm sure the my original Enterprise probably annoyed my the publisher a little bit. Although back then they had ways of dealing with that. I think it'd be safe to say that you can't 
to do a hand illustration like that, you couldn't do it at that size, finding the one place left in the country to reproduce it in order to print it because nobody has stat cameras anymore. Nobody has, I mean, there are places that said, you know, we're going to still do this like, and you know, film is never going to go away, but there are only going to be certain places in the country. They're going to develop film and someone, there's probably a place in the country that's, that can still do that stuff, but it's probably going to be more expensive. And um, now we can, we can work virtually in that scale on the computer it just doesn't you know it's not a we're not limited by that and you can much easier vantage, you can set your vanishing yeah. point anywhere on an illustrator file and and you're good as gold you know the 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 guide for the size of the enterprise d was drawing it so that my deck height would be three-eighths of an inch so i'd have enough room in that three-eighths of an inch to draw the little rooms in each of the decks because it's got 42 decks in the D, right? So they, I could only take thir- three-eighths of an inch for a deck. Now, in the Illustrator, it doesn't matter because I can zoom into that deck and draw all manner of detail that I would never have been able to draw um, back in the day. So it's been very interesting to... Both of us have crossed that divide from old school to the new way, right? Now, as far as like Star Trek goes, too, I just want to ask you, uh, what would you say would be the most complicated ship or, or Star Trek thing uh, that you guys ever drew? Because I know you guys did DS9, you did Voyager, you did uh, the Phoenix. So which of those things was probably you know the most difficult one for you, to, for you two to handle? Well, I have an answer to that, but it's not Star Trek. I don't think Star Trek is particularly hard to draw. Star Trek is very, has a very, there's a lot of continuity to Star Trek and there's a a lot of standards already set up for Star Trek. So, you know, um, decks are typically horizontal. Um, As long as you have enough reference, um, it's, it's not, it's less of a matter of hard and more of a matter of time. Time is, a big deal. Um, I mean, um, you do perspective work for so long, it just you know how to do it. And now, um, if I would say time is time is hard. When I do an illustration, when I think of, I think of fans, and I think of criticism, <laughs> and I don't, I don't want to necessarily let someone down. Not that I should care about that. I do feel like when I do a drawing, I want someone to look at it. I want them to say, wow, he added that in there. You know, that's cool. Um, so maybe detail. Getting detail, like not, not, not leaving something out by accident, you know, is a scary thing or uh, what have you. But um, I am currently drawing a ship right now that is, I think it really just comes down to time, but it's also been hard to try to figure out because it's a very convoluted ship and no deck is in the no deck is in the same plane as the other deck, you know? So every time you draw a deck, you've got to redraw everything in a different plane, a different perspective. And then you get to the next deck and now everything is in a different plane, a different perspective. Um, because the way the gravity plates in the ship work, it's just 
it doesn't have to be the straight across horizontal deck plane that you would expect in Star Trek um, or or Star Wars even, you know, those these those genres keep it simple probably to make people understand it the best, you know, it's easier to understand by the, by the viewer, you know? Yeah. I don't think any of our drawings are, are, are that particularly hard. Um, uh, I think the enterprise E threw a little bit of a challenge because the guys didn't want just a horizontal deck thing. They threw in a lot of diagonal structural supports into that ship um that kind of chopped it up and made some of the decision making uh a little bit harder um believe it or not the enterprise e does separate and that had to be drawn in there even though we never ever saw it happen it 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 it, it, it can happen and it is in our illustration but uh it, it's not hard but literally i think if there's anything to appreciate uh what we do is the amount of hours of our lives that go into each one of these drawings is really, really super incredible. I mean, we have spent thousands and thousands of hours over the years doing these drawings, you know, and you know, that, 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 that has a cost. And again, that that's where labor of love, love comes in, even if we're getting paid, you know, um, that still figures in the labor of love still figures in because we're not going to let any fan down. You know, I'm a big believer in verisimilitude, you know, the canon of it all, the, the exactness of it all. When we got commentary by the art department and the licensing department at Paramount, they, they, they would, they, they were like, no, you can't do that. It has to be like this because a, B and C, you know? So for the longest time, there was a uh, from the time that Next Generation started until the end of Enterprise. It you know the continuity of that show was pretty incredible, not perfect, but it was pretty incredible, you know. And these people really worked hard to maintain that. Um, and so when we would do our drawings, we felt the same onus on us to do that as well, right? We, we just couldn't run off the reservation with our own ideas. Although in all of our drawings, we have a lot of our own ideas in there, you know, because not everything that you, you know, we show parts of the ship that have never been on TV, but you wouldn't know it because, you know, we, we've, we've gone through the, the Starfleet technology school of hard knocks. You know, like the kind of thing too, with the whole idea of time as well. I think a lot of folks maybe don't appreciate time and you know we're talking how long it takes for a, fin- uh, a drawing to be finished from point a to point b but I-, I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand also the type of training you guys went through because you're also paying for that expertise and that professional knowledge that means that yeah it might take you a thousand hours to do like a ship just off the top of my head not saying that is but you know it might take you x amount of hours but it's also not factoring in the fact that you've had years of practice before then that mean that it only takes you this much amount of time Versus if I tried to do it, it would probably take me seven times the amount of time to do like what you do, because I got to learn all the stuff you already know. So, you know, it's always one of those things that I see fans will say, like, you know, oh, how long did it take you? But it's such a broader, bigger picture thing, too, than just the immediacy of drawing what you did. And, uh, you know, that kind of leads me to my next question here. So we were talking earlier about how you guys have now moved into like doing Illustrator and you're working digitally nowadays. 
Uh, and earlier we talked about plagiarism and that kind of problem. So, you know, I know for a fact my logo for this podcast, I've actually seen on uh, the I've been trained.com website. So I know like my logo is being used by AI to help train it. So, you know, for you guys now in this digital realm, what quality of life improvements have you seen that have made things easier or I shouldn't say easier, but maybe have expedited your artistic process and what things today have made it scary perhaps or more challenging to work with? For me, I, I've only just recently moved into the digital. You know, Matt Matt really has kind of cut, cut that. You know, uh, I grew up in Adobe Photoshop. Matt grew up in Adobe Illustrator. So... So yeah, he's sort of cut all the the ground for us on that. Yeah. I got a head start on Illustrator back in the 90s and by the time I went on my own, meaning I left my corporate job, um I had a pretty good understanding of Illustrator, but it was through my corporate work or I'm, I'm sorry, it's through my when I, my company work, the company I own, um, does a lot of technical illustration work. I really learned a lot of muscle memory, a lot of um, aspects about Illustrator that uh, maybe some people don't understand or or they don't they're not familiar with all the time. It kind of got me in a good place to apply it to. Um, cutaway so when i started my business i sort of took a break from cutaway uh, i was working for local companies getting my business off the ground and our uh, our publisher Cypop tech was sort of wanting to retire in a way um and uh, it was a good opportunity to just um start focusing on my business um i think it was later on um a couple things you know the the Star Trek market was kind of void of quality thing quality materials. I mean, plush toys and pizza cutters and cats of Star Trek calendars can only go so far. That tied into the 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 JJ Prize era. Um, you know, Chris um, said, "Hey, we should do we should do this ship for the." Um, it was sort of talked about after the movie was came out, the first JJ Prize movie, Star Trek. Chris had a, you know bought a toy. He says, "Look, we can use this." And I, I, I said, "Well, let's." It kind of fizzled out basically, but um, they were coming out with another movie, and I said, "Well, you know, they're going to have more sets." I think what. What kept us from doing it was they didn't have enough material, I think, from the first movie. And uh, the second movie, I, you know, I thought, well, they're going to have more sets. They're going to have more to this ship. And then I started, you know, I reached out to Paramount and or CBS and said, you know, we'd be interested in doing this. And what happened was, um, you know, there was a paradigm shift in how you guys, uh, um how how pair how cbs did work with people like us um it was hard to get in contact with people it was hard to talk to people it's hard to get your ideas across um i'm digressing here a little bit but it's just it's a fun story you know jj didn't want to share 
material about the new movie for us to make a composite cutaway of the new Enterprise. Anyway, the guy in charge of licensing at the time, I think his name was C.J. Phillips or C.J. Pierce. Um, can't remember. I think that's his name. He goes, I love this work. This is awesome because I showed him all my art. I, I just sort of gave him. He knew who we were. He, he, he knew of our work handed down from previous licensed people at CBS Paramount. And he goes, would you guys, would you guys consider rebranding your older work? And it was at that point that I was primed with this void of, of stuff in the Star Trek world in terms of marketing. There was really not much being marketed and being done. And uh, I, I, I said, yeah, you know, that sounds like a great idea. And it just kind of got the thought patterns going. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to redo my original enterprise. I don't know how long it's going to take. I don't care. Um, it was 2012, 11. And I took four, four years redrawing my original enterprise, except now, um, you know, halfway through that process, I was using blueprints that my friend Gary Kerr gave me from the Trial and Tribulations DS9 episode where Greg Jean made that Enterprise model for that episode. And um, um, now I have that data to help. I can change the proportions and make sure my Enterprise is more accurate. Halfway through that process, you know, Chris emails me or calls me and says, hey, they're they're restoring the Enterprise again for the Smithsonian. You should talk to this lady, uh, Dr. Margaret Wittekamp at the um, Smithsonian. And so anyway, I felt like my self-education and my my progress with Illustrator up to that point was primed and um, um, getting back to time. Um, you know, I probably have 4,000 hours in that rendition, but I didn't have any deadline, except I think my deadline became the 50th anniversary of Star Trek. You know, like I, I want to get this done before I go to to Washington to celebrate alongside everyone else. And and so um, that illustration's 11 feet in illustration. You know, it's 11 foot illustration. It's 11 foot in Illustrator, and it's just short of 11 foot in a Photoshop at 300 DPI. So you can imagine the size of that file. Um, so RAM is key um, for those things. Um, so sorry, that was a long. <laughs> but it was it was the it, I think it was the JJ Prize era that got me motivated. And the suggestion made by CBS, would you would you be willing to rebrand your work? You know, which I thought was a neat idea. I, you know, I'm always about, you know, Leonardo da Vinci was, doesn't have a huge body of work in terms of final paintings. But what he did was he spent years, almost decades, 
on one piece on 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 perfecting a one piece of work throughout you know he'd work he would move from this piece to this piece perfecting it before he said it was done um it wasn't one of those things where he drew a picture and he said this is done so like the mona lisa didn't happen over day he took years doing that because he would go back to it and say i can do this better i would make this better um I recommend getting the uh, the biography of Leonardo da Vinci, the famous biographer, I forgot his name, came out with the last five, ten years ago or some, uh, ten years ago maybe, um, that talks about um, that process. And I, I, I don't want to emulate Leonardo da Vinci per se. I mean, I, I like Leonardo da Vinci stuff, but I just thought, you know, why can't I do that with my work? I'm going to and maybe in 20 years, I could see perfecting it again. Um, so anyway. All right. So I know, uh, you know, as we come to a close of this interview here today, uh, everyone always asks about advice for aspiring artists. But I'd rather ask you guys, uh, what's something that you know today that you wish you knew about drawing or technical illustration uh, or, or anything in this realm of the profession that you're in that you wish you knew when you first started? And I'm going to start with you, Chris. I think I wish I had known uh, uh, quite a bit more about the business side of it. I think artists do a great job of being creative and can, you know, do what they do. But uh, artists generally don't necessarily make the best business people. And there's a great deal of business that goes into running, you know, doing what you do. You just can't draw, draw it. You need to. There are contracts taxes, all kinds of things that you need to take into consideration. And I think, you know, someone should learn that right up front. How about you, Matt? I think what, I think what's important to know uh, or to understand that I think is hard for a young person to understand sometimes is there's always someone who's going to know more about the subject you're working on than you and seek those people out. By seeking those people out, you gain you know, you gain traction, um, some uh, support. The sci-fi community is very supportive, and it's amazing what you can find out and to uh, improve upon your own endeavor. I think I, I think I would add, and 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 I think I've already mentioned this with the Enterprise D. Um, uh, there's literally no difference between my drawing the Enterprise D and the movie. Uh, feel the dreams. Literally, build it, and they will come. You know, like don't wait for anybody to get permission to do it. Just do it because you love it, and if it's great, it'll become something. Very good lesson there. Uh, so as we wrap up now for realsies, uh, I'm going to give you guys the last question I ask all my guests. I'll start with you, Matt. Uh, what is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? Well, right now, I would say the best thing is, um, and I think we need it more now than ever, is Gene Roddenberry had a very positive outlook on the future. And I think we live in a world where the future doesn't look very positive. And I think there's a lesson to be learned in that. Um, my 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 hope is that we end up with a world uh uh, that that Gene um, kind of created and thought of, and uh, I think we need it. <laughs> so 
uh, I like the positive future. I, uh, the non-dystopian aspect of Star Trek, it's, it's what we need more than ever right now. And how about you, Chris? What's uh, the best thing for you about being a part of the Star Trek universe? Um, you know, literally meeting all kinds of people from people who were involved in the show uh, to the fans that, you know, that's, that's really been an incredible experience, you know, uh, getting to know your heroes and, 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 and just all the fan appreciation that we've received over the years has just been phenomenal. And that's, you know, that's a blessing in and of itself. You know, that's, that's in many ways payment enough for what we do. Right. So all right. Well, that's awesome, you guys. And, uh, you know, I want to thank you again for both joining me today for this episode. You know, I, I feel like your artwork is one of those things where it's like everybody knows it, but not a lot of folks necessarily know the names behind it. And I'm happy that we got to educate a lot of folks, uh, tell them your stories, tell them what you do and how you do it, because what you guys do is so different uh, and and so unique. And, you know, I've seen those posters everywhere. Honestly, I'm really excited to talk to you guys because I've seen the Enterprise D. I've seen that, that fat D, as Riker called it. And uh, it's it's so cool now to put, you know, a face behind the artistry in there because, yeah, I love what you guys do. And I really would love to see you guys handle like Strange New World to do some cutaways for like any of the new Star Trek shows. So Paramount, can we make it happen? Would you guys do that if Paramount came out to you and said, hey, we want to want you guys to do Discovery? Would, would, they, would you take that job? You know, I wouldn't mind drawing the the Stargazer or the Titan. I'd like to see that. Yeah, I, I really love I really love Picard season three, one episode in and I'm like hooked already. Yes. Like blown blown out of my socks. So Cushman Bros do the Titan. I'm up for that one. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, fabulous Cushman Brothers, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks All for right. having us. That's it for this week's episode of Trek Untold. Until next time, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Trek Untold, all one word. If you'd like to directly support this podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter over on patreon.com slash trekuntold which gives you access to some great perks that can't be beat. Or pick up some merchandise from our store, or use my Amazon shop link to check out all kinds of different Star Trek merchandise. Links for all these things are in the show notes. Shout out to Triple Fiction Productions for being a key sponsor of Trek Untold. Don't forget to check them out and all of the fine folks whose ads you've seen or heard on this podcast, too. If you have any questions, feedback, or comments for the show, or would like to suggest a guest or discuss sponsorship options for any of these episodes in the future, send me a message at trekuntold at gmail.com. I hope to see you here again as we uncover more untold stories from Star Trek and beyond and get to know even more amazing people who have contributed to this ever-expanding universe. Until next time, I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and remember, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the Rageworks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.